Good morning. My name is Brandon Barnes. I'm one of the elders here at the chapel. It's great to have you. Merry Christmas to you and your families. We are in our third week of Advent this morning. Christmas just around the corner. We are looking at the four royal titles given by the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament uh, passage of Isaiah chapter 9. Wonderful counselor, mighty God was last week we looked at, and today we look at this unique title of everlasting father, everlasting father. Gary said it best when we launched this series in Isaiah that it's speaking light into darkness, meaning hope is not gone, and I think it's extraordinarily poignant for our time and for our generation, certainly for those previous to us as well, but it feels real in the world at the moment now. And the key to the passage as a whole, as we'll see when we look at this today, is Isaiah is pointing to the kingship of Jesus, the Messiah to come. And so this morning, we explore this messianic name of everlasting father, this king to come is going to initiate something new, and it'll be different. He will be the head, and he will usher in a new family and a new kingdom, And to help us understand this, I have four points we're going to walk through this morning. The first point I want to make is, why Father? Why this unique distinction? How should we understand this versus, say, uh, the first person of the triunity, God the Father? Uh, Second, what would those who receive this prophecy, what would they in their time and in their culture expect from a father like this? What connection would they make, both good and bad? So I want us to see the expectations of an everlasting father. Third, how does this apply to us? How does this provide us hope, this need that we have for a fatherly savior? Jesus came to us and we are forced with a choice to remain what I'll call functioning orphans or become loved children. Finally, our hope in this title lies in the term eternal or everlasting. We are given security and assurance that this Father will be eternal, and we are invited into this. So my goal this morning is for those of you who have been followers or are followers of Christ to be encouraged, to be bolstered in these uncertain times, and those of you who maybe are new or just investigating this, that you'd be challenged to consider the claims of the Bible today and who this Messiah wants to be uniquely and personally in your life. Let's open in a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, as we open your word today, may we marvel at the goodness of your Son, Jesus. We ask your Holy Spirit that you, we ask the Holy Spirit that you would enlighten us and our minds to the truth and reality of Jesus as the source of our joy and the source of our security in this Christmas season. Speak light into our lives. Chase away the darkness Satan wants to cast through confusion, doubt, and uncertainty. Lord, let this place, this time, this next 40 minutes or so, be a shelter from the storm of the world and encapsulate the truth you need us to hear. In your name we pray, amen. Let's read together Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Again, this is our anchor passage. Start in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So we see very clearly in the scripture this is addressing a king to come. But why the, world, why the word father? So I want to make a couple of quick subpoints on this one. Some people have erred on this description because, and, and I want to just make clear, there, is no, there should be no conflict here with what we understand to be the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. People have erred on this description of the Messiah in the past thinking rather than this talking about a triune God that there is oneness. It's actually called oneness theology, meaning the Father and the Son are really one and the same person. And this is an error in biblical interpretation. It does matter. And my young adults in here this morning should be able to sniff this out because we just did five weeks on the Trinity. Theologian R.C. Sproul explains it this way. He says, the Trinity is understood in Orthodox Christianity is that God is one in essence while his diversity is expressed in terms of three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is important because we see both the unity of God when we get to passages like Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But then we also see diversity and we see plurality through Scripture. When we get to Matthew chapter 3, you see Jesus at his baptism. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. So we see the sun. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God. We see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We see the Father, unity and diversity. We see in one moment three distinct persons. So first, the Messiah being the second person of the Trinity is in his essence God. I have in my essence humanity, and the attributes of being human are in my biology. But I'm also the person, Brandon. It's a special distinction I have. Jesus has all the attributes of God in his essence, including his eternal nature, but is distinct in his personhood as Jesus. Since God is one and he exists in three persons, then the Messiah, Jesus, is God. And we should stand back and be a little, little in awe of that. Let's use that word. It's not something we can fully comprehend, but it's something that I think we can apprehend in Scripture. And what's important here is that distinction has to be made because when you get to verses like John chapter 10 or 14, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Or anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is not saying, and Jesus is not saying he is the Father. Again, that would be ignoring all these other scriptures, particularly the one I just read. The point here is he shares the attributes of one eternal God while remaining distinct in person as the Son. His essence is God. My essence is human. But here's the thing. What makes him worthy of our worship is not that we're the same, but that he's God and I'm not. So my second point, sub-point here, what then is meant by eternal father? What's meant by that? Well, father in the context that Isaiah is speaking is describing this Messiah's relationship to time, not his relationship to the other members of the Trinity. Let me say that one more time. This, Messiah, this context in Isaiah is describing the Messiah's relationship to time, not his relationship to the other members of Trinity. 
The word father in the Hebrew language, when used particularly across the Old Testament, depicts a variety of different things in a patriarchal society. Patriarchal societies where the father was the head of a people or the the head of a nation or the head of a family. So for Isaiah to picture this Messiah as an eternal father would be normal or acceptable characterization of someone that's going to be the head or the founder of a new group. It was commonly associated with kings as well. An originator, a producer, a generator would have this title. It's a respect of honor. And then you put everlasting in front of it. And Isaiah is saying this Messiah to come will have all of these cultural distinctives of the founder or originator of a group, but in perpetuity with no end. In ancient times, the father of the nation shared characteristics, as I said, with kings, similar expectations of kings. It was the role of a king to be a kind of a father who was to protect and who was to care for his people. In the same way, this child to be born will become a king who will share these father-like traits to the children of Israel and down the road, the Gentiles that will be grafted in, you and me. He will protect and care for them. His role as protector and provider will not be limited by aging and death like the the other founders that are discussed in the Old Testament of the Bible. Abraham died. King David died. This Messiah to come will not be limited by death. So just how will this come about? It's not revealed in this prophecy, but as we all, for those who, uh, who routinely read the Bible, we know it goes into the New Testament. And we actually see the full identity of the Messiah is revealed. He will become known as God in flesh, the incarnate, the second person of the Trinity. He will provide perfectly and shepherd his people the things that they need. His death and his resurrection on their behalf will fulfill over 300 different prophecies about him in Scripture. So there is no conflict with the Trinity, and hopefully there's some clarity for us now as we move forward pictured in, in this, this, uh, this, uh, this title of Everlasting Father. So, what would the hearers of this understand and look forward to from an Everlasting Father? It's my next point. What were their expectations? Why would this bring hope? Well, the kings of the Old Testament were established by God to act as these benevolent providers for the people. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses actually lays out exactly what the people should expect from their rulers. Follow along. He says, Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God, and follow carefully the words of the law and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. So to summarize, these leaders in in many respects were to act like 
the fathers of a family. They were to maintain unity. They were to provide for the family. They were to not put their needs first, but they were to put the needs of the family ahead of themselves. They were to choose a wife that would share a passion for God and know God's word inside and out and to pursue equality across the family. These were to be servant leaders of the people. And these are important traits for all of us as we think about distinctives of leadership in our lives. But certainly, if you are a father or a husband in the room, you need to pay special attention to what God is asking. So these would be the expectations of the people. But what was actually happening? For those of you who have read much of the, New, of the Old Testament, you know many of the kings did not do this, and most of them broke every single one of these rules. In fact, Ezekiel 34, 7 through 10 has some harsh words where swap the name king out with shepherd because that's another word that's used for them. But listen to this. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has plundered and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock but cared for themselves rather than for my flock, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. And we get this beautiful picture of Jesus coming to be the true shepherd that these shepherds failed to be. These shepherd kings were not acting as father figures. They had done the opposite. Power and pride had ruled them. They were characterized by self-indulgence. They neglected the feeding of the people spiritually and physically. They did not care for the weak. They didn't help the sick. They didn't take up the case of the injured and had not sought after those who had strayed away. And God sends his prophets all through the Old Testament to remind them that they were in error. Zechariah 10.3 is a great example. My anger burns against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders. And the Lord God is clear on his expectations. When these leaders fail, not only did they poorly represent his people, but they they misrepresented his name. And so the Messiah prophesied by Isaiah is going to fulfill these failed expectations of these earthly kings, these earthly shepherds, and he's going to do what is right, modeling this for us while on earth. And this would be incredible news to the hearers of the time. He is going to be a true shepherd. He's going to build a church as we now know, and he will conquer sin, death, and Satan, restoring us to himself through the presence of his Holy Spirit to bring us a relationship to the Father. And so we understand the use of Father, and it distinguishes Jesus' kingly fatherly role from that of God the Father. We also see that there were these expectations of how these kings should act and behave and where they fell short. It brings us to our third point. How does this apply to us? Why do we have this need for this same fatherly Savior? I'm completely convinced, having spent time in this, that each of us has a desire to be deeply known, to want full satisfaction of unconditional love and forgiveness. I want to explain why I think we are functioning orphans searching for a real family. One of the common, most common themes associated with children who have come through adoption, who have come through uh, foster care, 
at, at a younger age and younger ages throughout their life or even later ages, they sense this loss even when connected to a good family. And depending on how this loss is sort of dealt with, it can provide manifest itself in all kinds of different psychological outcomes in life. And I have family members um, and relatives through adoption and foster care, and I know no matter how much they were loved, how much they were provided for, they will tell you there has and will always be a kind of distance through a deep-seated sense of loss that was experienced, a kind of fracture, a kind of being cut off, a fracture that never quite sets right. And I share this because I don't, I don't want to take away from the difficulty of those of you who've maybe been through this, those of you who have been adopted or were orphaned at a young age, and you're dealing with these very real hurts, but because the Bible explains that every single one of us can actually feel something similar to this. If we're intellectually honest with ourselves for just, take 10 minutes, just get quiet, we know and feel deep down something is broken. There's a longing that exists. Let me give you some examples. Maybe it's a sense of loss and separation that bubbles up for you in a lack of feeling and purpose. What am I here for? Maybe it's a weariness that comes from feeling like nothing is ever settled. I keep working and working and working. I feel like I'm on a treadmill. Maybe it's that quick letdown after you had this immediate high, shopping, buying something, doing drugs, whatever. The letdown is real afterwards, and you're just looking for it again. Maybe it's the feeling that you can't escape, that just something bad is just around the corner, and you're just waiting for it to come get you. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's something else. But that nagging sense. Maybe it's your social media presence is leaving you feeling like you're fake and you can't find reality anymore. Or maybe you're a people pleaser and that constant fear and weariness of disappointing another person is there with you that you can't shake. Maybe it's the unease with the biggest questions of life. Why am I here? What's the point of all this? What happens when I die? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Paul explains this in one simple word. It's called death. Meaning, being cut off from the one true source of life brings about this uncertainty. Eventually, yes, we will all physically die. That's how most people associate death. But Paul goes further. He says it's a psychological death that we carry around actively and daily. And the Bible calls this sin. It's a cancer. Paul says in Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And now my slides froze up on me, of course. Jesus, prior to going to the cross to offer redemption to all mankind, he actually said this about those who were following him, those who were uh, listening to his teaching, those who were close to him. He didn't trust it. He said this, he said, Jesus would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, listen to this, for he himself knew what was in man. What's in us that Jesus didn't trust? What's wrong with us? Our culture wants to tell us nothing. Our culture wants to tell you that you're perfect just the way you are. But I don't think any of us goes through one single day actually satisfied with this as an answer. If you have to spend most of your day telling yourself, I'm perfect the way I am, I'm okay, I'm okay, 
then rather knowing that instinctively or intuitively, then we're looking for validation from the wrong source. We will never satisfy ourselves. We always need the validation of something external. We always need to hear from someone that we are loved. We always need to hear from someone that we are accepted. It's how humans operate. Galatians 6, 8 explains it a little bit more. The one who sows to his flesh will reap corruption from the flesh. The simplest way to understand that is we don't have the power to change ourselves. Trying to build from something broken just results in an ongoing brokenness. Most days, all we can do is distract ourselves with television, computer, media, shopping, whatever it takes to push some of these feelings aside. We have to confront the very truth that we know instinctively, which is this. I am separated from that which I long to know and find ultimate assurances. We are functioning orphans living in a world where we seek real family. Maybe you're not convinced. Maybe you need some help from Dwight Schrute from The Office. So this is Rain Wilson. He wrote a book I read this summer. It's kind of interesting called Soul Boom. He's more of an appreciator of Christianity than a, a follower. But he said some interesting things. He says, as a species, we are quite lost right now. And perhaps the systems, beliefs, practices, and behaviors that society is currently operating under are not working. Maybe they're founded on some faulty assumptions. Maybe political parties, international, intergovernmental organizations, and our Washington, D.C. leaders won't fix us. Maybe our existing economic systems, nonprofits, social movements don't have the answers. You know where he ends up? He ends up at the orphan conclusion that something in our soul is cut off and nothing can heal that until we start with that place of brokenness. And the data to back this up is alarming. The most obvious place of all insecurity and anxiety is found in what's called our mental health pandemic that is underway. Deaths of despair, have you heard that term? Suicide, overdose, misuse of prescription painkillers, anxiety, depression, loneliness. Just a few statistics for you. Since 2008, suicide thoughts and outcomes are up 47%. Suicide's the second leading cause of death from ages 10 to 14 and the third leading cause of death for ages 15 to 24. When do we strive for our identity most heavily? Those ages. Galatians 6, 8. The one who sows to his flesh will reap corruption from the flesh. We don't have the power to change our condition. I'm trying to characterize for you the very fact that we all feel anxiety apart from this description of the kind of Messiah that we need, this everlasting Father. People closest to me will tell you that I like a couple of bands very much. One of them is a band called U2. Probably many of you have heard of them. I love the way that they kind of connect these large themes of, uh, of love conquering death and despair. And they put out an album several years ago called How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. And I love that title. I thought it was an odd title when it first came out, but then I started to read the, the album note liner, the liner in the, in the notes of the album. And you come across this paraphrase from Robert Oppenheimer on the first test of the atomic bomb. And he said, I am death, the mighty destroyer of the world. And the band asks this question through their songs, if death is the mighty destroyer of the world, how do you dismantle that atomic bomb? 
and the album explores lots of notions of love and death and both our vertical and horizontal relationships. One of my favorite lyrics says, lay down your treasure, lay it down now, brother, you don't have time before a jealous lover. As you enter this life, I pray you depart with a wrinkled face and a brand new heart. And a little nod to Ezekiel 36:26. there. They close the album with this powerful lyric, take these hands, teach them to carry. Take these hands, don't make a fist. Take this mouth so quick to criticize. Take this mouth, give it a kiss. Yahweh, always pain before the child is born. Here's the point. The way to dismantle death does not come from ourselves. It comes from a God who says, I'm going to recreate you with the very presence of my heart. But to do this, I'm going to enter your pain, and I'm going to take my own son, my own beloved son, and I'm going to dismantle this atomic bomb that would otherwise destroy you catastrophically. Paul said it this way to Timothy. He said, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death. Somebody say amen. And has brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Romans 5, Paul goes on after the bad news to give us the good news. Therefore, he says, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. Adoption as sons. You start to see the shift in time that Jesus brings, the father of something new. And this is good news. This is news that I received when I was a teenager and I was wrestling with anxiety and I was wrestling with insomnia, wrestling with the feeling that I could never measure up with what my peers were doing. Wrestling with the notion that on the other side of death was nothing but darkness and separation. Wrestling with so many insecurities. I knew I was deeply loved by my parents, but I could never get enough of that. I could never get enough affirmation. I couldn't get past myself because I was sowing in corruption. And these passages in Romans and Galatians, when my dad shared these with me, They spoke deep into my humanity. I knew it had to be true or I was going to become another statistic in death of despair. It's the love and assurance that convinced my orphan heart that I had a Savior that did all I would ever need to bring me to his family forever. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, generation makes us the sons of Adam. Regeneration acknowledges us as the sons of Christ. In our first birth, we came under the fatherhood of the fallen one. In our second birth, we entered into the fatherhood of the innocent and perfect one. Fatherhood of the innocent and perfect one. Again, you see, the father, you see fatherhood in relationship to this relationship in this shift of time. The shift of time, because of his, this everlasting father, we shift from all the failure associated with our sinful birth through father Adam, and we enter into a new nature through Christ. Re- Revelations 21.5, Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, If any man be in Christ, he 
is a new creature. Old things have passed. But what about you this morning? Are you distracting yourself with everything you can think of to keep yourself from dealing with these thoughts? Or are you on the other end, are you obsessing and fretful, anxious, not knowing where to turn? I don't want to oversimplify, but you need to understand the crux of the issues we're talking about this morning are that your lineage through Adam, your original father, born you into a broken state of death, decay, and sin. Genesis chapter 3 is not a myth. Adam and Eve really distrusted God, and it explains why we see fracturing and brokenness in the world today. Jesus affirmed the historical Adam, and Jesus himself has been historically verified. We can trust God's word. Let today be the day that Jesus conquers that place of uncertainty. Let today be the day you dismantle that atomic bomb in your life. Enter the fatherhood of the innocent and the perfect one. I want to close with one final point. As we find ourselves not just worshiping this internal Savior, but we're actually invited into something beautiful. As a father, I can tell you, if you, for those of you who have little kids, um, when my kids were little, you go into a gymnasium full of kids, and you can still pick out of the crowd your kid's voice. It's amazing. It's this distinct little pitch or whatever, and you can kind of hear them and see them, and you know it's there. John chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I, have, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And this messianic, everlasting father description invites us into this kind of ring of fellowship. That is the desire, the deep desire of our hearts. And I want to circle back on the Trinity here. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. From the beginning of time, this is the model of love that we know. A model of fellowship, a model of deep relationship. You were thought of then. Your name was known. Your voice in the crowd was heard. You have been identified. But even in our rebellion and our defection from this perfect relationship, what is called sin and rebellion in the world, God puts this plan together to draw you back to himself. The Father initiated this plan before all time. The Son accepted this plan. The Son goes to the cross in full obedience to the Father. And then the Holy Spirit takes that work that Jesus did, the sacrifice he made for you, is applied to you through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. You are granted forgiveness and adoption through that. I came across this interesting, in doing this study, I came across this interesting article from C.S. Lewis. It was uh, addressed to a group of graduating students in 1944 in King's College. And he suggests a truth that I think we can all uh, connect with in all history. And he says this, we have a desire to get into the inner circles of relationships. He says there comes a time in every person's life uh, in our lives, when we become aware of two things in relationships. One, that there will be these circles of exclusive relationships. And two, there will, we will always be aware we're just outside of them. He then discusses our longing to get into those and the costs at which we will make and the, the sacrifices we will make both to lose and gain something of ourselves to get into those circles. And he gives examples. It might be a peer group. It might be a management group at work that you're just trying to get into that. If you get into that, you can be an influencer. Maybe it's a school group. 
that you're trying to get into, grades, so it can get you next level circle. Maybe it's a political or social justice group or movement. Maybe it's in the military, you're trying to get that next rung. Maybe it's a social club, an athletic team. Maybe it's in fitness. If I can just get to this next level of fitness, I can get into this. Maybe it's a desired relationship. And he says these circles aren't necessarily bad. But he says there's a powerful, deep desire to be in those groups that's only surpassed by the power and terror of the thought of being left out. Then he says that fear of being left out, that fear of being on the wrong side, of being outside of that circle, that invisible line, will prompt behaviors from you that over time will inevitably leave you conflicted, anxious, and unsatisfied. There's your free therapy for the morning. Where do you go to find that ultimate identity, he says, will dictate how you operate in the world. And conversely, how the world is being organized and made up as we know it. This desire for an identity is the mainspring of humanity. The desire to be known. An identity can be life-giving or it can be life-taking. And I suspect there are many here who have compromised much of their life to get into these circles, but they're still feeling restless. They're still feeling discontent. They're still looking for another circle to break into to make them feel whole and complete. Now, what if God's plan was to include you into a divine and eternal circle so powerful that it has the ability to encompass you and satisfy you, that it alone will be enough to establish and root you here now and to give you joy for eternity. You've been invited into that circle. Hebrews chapter 2 is one of my favorite passages. It says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death, physical death, psychological death, anxiety about the circles we want or can't get into, about being accepted or not being accepted. We are freed from that fear of death. See the association as well. Jesus with the children of humanity, God the Father has given us into Jesus' care. And then we're given fullness. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long and high and deep is the love of Christ. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you're suddenly dealing with some of those of the biggest questions in life. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Why do I want purpose and meaning in my life? Why am I angry at the injustices in the world? What happens when I die? Maybe you're weary from trying to get into those inner rings of understanding, of relationships, of acceptance. Can I invite you this morning to start your journey finding these answers with a God who invites you into his unfolding, loving trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all working through eternity to draw you to themselves. Will you enter into the fatherhood of the innocent and perfect one, Jesus, a loved, as a loved child, or will you stay functioning as an orphan lost in this world? Jesus, the everlasting Father, settles our orphan hearts. 
He draws us into an intimacy through his deep love for us, through the grace of his forgiveness, through surrounding us, through the love of his church and the abiding counsel of his Holy Spirit, the knowledge of true love of our Abba Father. I love the way that Paul uses that term. That's where we're at. Can you pray with me? God, we thank you that you did not leave us in this place to try to dismantle this atomic bomb. God, you bring us to the knowledge and need of a savior. Death is being cut off from life. You are life. Your word is life. You demonstrated this through your conquering of death. Let us not, as the author of Hebrews says, deliberately go on sinning after we receive this word of truth for there is no sacrifice for sins left. Your word says there's only expectation of judgment and wrath that awaits for those who forsake this amazing truth that nothing can heal us from the deep wound we have except for you. We cannot from corruption build into righteousness. We just can't. Only a perfect sacrifice made on our behalf and received personally can regenerate us. I just want to pray for a minute now. I want to offer a prayer for those here in this Advent season that maybe need to pray this prayer. Let today be the day. Just repeat after me. It's as simple as these words. God, I recognize my need for a Savior. I realize I cannot produce the kind of goodness that you require. I need Jesus, the Prince of Peace, to regenerate me, to make me your child to take my sin and in exchange give me new life in the presence of your Holy Spirit in a new heart. Thank you for not leaving us in despair, but filling us with hope. May we go from here today encouraged, shining your light into a dark world. We celebrate you now and enjoy you forevermore. Amen.